This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everyone. Today's special episode covers a subject near and dear to my heart, science fiction. It's a genre that I love because it asks challenging questions about where humanity is going and its predictive quality is something that no other genre can boast. But today, we're not just covering science fiction in general, but French science fiction in the post-World War II period. France has an incredible literary tradition going back to the Middle Ages, though its science fiction has often been overlooked. Thankfully, Professor Annabelle Doladon of Portland State University is studying post-World War II French science fiction and has worked to popularize it for a contemporary audience. Professor Doladon received her master's from the University of Notre Dame in French studies before acquiring her PhD from UC Davis in 20th and 21st century French and Francophone literature. Her previous work focused on prose by French women writers. Currently, she is researching French science fiction and its depictions of the changing climate, developing social structures, and bodily transformation. What follows is a deep dive into how French writers have approached futurism and the possibilities and threats posed by changing technology. talk a little bit about you. Can you tell me about yourself and perhaps why your love of sci-fi mm-hmm. uh, came sure. about? So well, it didn't, it's not my original project. I when I was a, um, a student for my PhD, I was doing general literature, uh, a lot of women literature. I did some queer studies and stuff like this. So that was my, my first interest. And that's what I published in the first years. And I kind of got a little bored with it. Uh, and then I discovered science fiction, and it brought me back to when I was reading it when I was much younger. And I didn't read it for many, many years. And then I came back to it, and I discovered uh, a wealth of ideas, uh, different narratives, not in terms necessarily of style and form. Uh, I mean, once you've read the big canonical work, sometimes the quality is uh, much higher, but Really good writing, however, and uh, just questions that the other types of literature uh, don't ask. Um, so that was perhaps, I don't know, six years ago, something like this. So I'm not, you know, a pure scholar of French science fiction or science fiction. In terms of like the history of the genre, I've read a lot, but it's not my specialty. What is very interesting to me is more what's happening now. The authors that I've been publishing... Uh, I've read stuff from the 80s and the 90s, but really also what has been coming out for the last 10 years is really, really interesting. Um, So I've published two or three. I've I've published, well, one that's published, one that's been accepted. No, two published, one accepted. Uh, And and also the thing that interests me a lot is teaching it. 
When you say published, you mean scholarly articles or you yes, mean... scholarly articles. Okay, but yes. n not creative. No, no, I don't do any creative writing. Really? Sci-fi. Why? I, well, it's... <laughs> I think it's mostly a matter of having the time because I need to concentrate a lot on everything I do. And because as a professor, sometimes you're all scattered around. I've done a lot of service and community service and stuff like this. I do advising and I love teaching and I, I always try to teach new courses. So I'm a little um, dispersé sometimes. Right. And that's the problem. So when I focus a little bit, I think a lot about creative writing, but I haven't really put myself into it okay. yet. Uh, what interests me right now a lot, actually, connected to sci-fi, but not only, is uh, the world of French comics, which is another absolutely amazing uh, field of literature. Uh, really, really high quality. It's amazing what, what comes out. So this is kind of what I've been doing for a couple of years now. And it's I came to it through science fiction. Um, because one of the problems, and we'll, we'll probably come to this later, one of the big problems with French science fiction is that it's not translated. Mm. So the American readership cannot really. Why do you think it. that is? Well, because um, there's no interest on this side of the Atlantic. There's so much production in American science fiction that there's really, I mean, even globally, you have some authors that are translated into English, but not that many. Mm. Uh, you have some, you know, some German authors or Polish, also Poland has a great history in science fiction. There are a few French, but they're, I think, more uh, two or three very established um, authors like Jean-Claude Duniac. Um, even somebody like Bordage, who's really one of the biggest, is, is not translated. So that's mind boggling to me. Um, but translation takes money and then, you know, a publisher would want to sell copies and, and I don't know that people will see the French come out of all the production, all the, the publications that exist already in American or in English or British. Also. Um, so that it seems that there's no market for it. Uh, one project that I have that I thought I would work on this year, but it probably will have to wait a little more. Um, is uh, to get an anthology of uh, French short stories published in English, mm -hmm. and perhaps with a French and English text together. Um, so I've been tracking some texts that have already been published, and you find a few in um, American um, journals, news um, magazines of sci-fi. Um, so if you don't kind of see that it's a French name and if you don't see it translated from the French, probably for readers who don't even perhaps know that it's a French author um, because it's published alongside American texts. Um, so, but there are a few out there, not that many, and publishing an anthology, you know, you need to pay the translators, you need to find them, you need to have to pay the author also. I've talked to some authors. I went to, I was very lucky, I went to the Utopia Festival last year. Nantes, which is one of the biggest festivals of sci-fi mm. in France. So I met all the great authors that I've been reading, uh, some of them very nice people, some of them interested in the project, who sent me texts, but they have to be translated. I have to find a publisher and to do a book proposal and everything. So that's my take a little. That's while. interesting because... But I think that's a good way to introduce the public to French sci-fi. Okay, that's interesting because... France has such a reputation as having one of, 
maybe the greatest reputations for literature. And yet now that I think about it, most of that relates to the past, particularly the Enlightenment thinkers, because there really haven't been, I suppose, too many great French books in general, not just sci-fi, but in general, that have reached a wide Anglophone audience. The 19th and the 20th century, yes. Well, uh, perhaps lately a little less, but I mean, if you think of Sartre and Camus and André Gide and all these people have reached a, a wider audience. But I think for today's generation, it's probably considered like old canonical literature and it's perhaps, I mean, who studies Sartre anymore? I mean, so much have been published. Who, who reads Proust anymore? I don't know. It's not my area, actually. I do contemporary stuff. So I've read them and I've taught them, and but it's, yeah, it's not, I, I don't necessarily need to add to the conversation about these authors. Uh, what's interesting sometimes is to go, still read them with new eyes or rediscover some authors that are not often read. And that's what when you were mentioning when we connected my review of this book, which is somebody who's going back to, so Natasha Vazder, um, I think that's how you pronounce it. She's going back to authors at the turn of the century, really, who wrote science fiction but have been forgotten. And she unearthed the text and she studies those texts. Um, I don't know what impetus she will give to readers to go read this 100-year-old text because the style is really a little older. Um, in terms of what has been produced, it, it's, it's unfortunate, but uh, text from Jules Verne, for example, who were not written for children. They were written, it was not for children. And they were somewhat revolutionary at the time. I mean, he really envisaged, you know, the world thousands of years from now, and there are not that many people who were doing this in, in that particular genre. Now it's classified as children's literature. Just like the uh, Comte de Perrault in the 17th century, uh, are now classified as children literature, but that's not how it was produced in the first place. Um, there were a lot of utopian texts that were written for you know, political purposes or um, have trying to, to uh, get out of the box in terms of ideas. And all of this has a little bit been forgotten. God knows why, why that happened. I really, you know, if, even the books that I read about that are trying to define French uh, French science fiction or retrace its history, um, do not offer really good explanation as to why the American market dominates so much. Hmm. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I wish I had the answer to that because uh, indeed you have you know philosophers look at science fiction now. The article from Le Monde uh, that you shared with me this morning really show that. People are starting to really pay attention to the ideas that come out of science fiction literature. Just to be clear to what we're referencing, recently France had the 14th of July, July parade, uh, often known as the Bastille Day parade, although that's not quite correct, and a uh, uh, military parade, and there was a man on a hoverboard flying around and after that the president macron had set up a group of researchers called red team and it was asking science fiction writers and futurists to come up with ideas for possible future technology potentially to be used for the military so 
Very interesting. I mean, I, I wonder how much that pays. Maybe I should apply. <laughs> Maybe. Very interesting. For several reasons. Um, so first of all, this idea that people are starting to pay attention, I think, comes from the content, um, the questions um, that are now the, uh, the matter of science fiction narratives today which is not what it was in the 50s or the 60s, 70s. Um, uh, the space travel, meeting aliens, and things like this. And, and there's a lot of interesting narratives on, on this topic, but that's not really what's interesting nowadays. And that's not what the authors write about uh, anymore. Um, there's a lot on virtual reality. There's a lot on robotic, but there's also usually what I really enjoy in French science fiction is the uh, social repercussion that all of those technical changes bring about. Uh, it's never just a technological tool. It's never a gimmick. Um, it has repercussion on um, social classes and, uh, I don't know, medical coverage, uh, the ones who are left behind. Um, the, that, the, you know, we, here we talk about the 1% or the 99%, depending on which side you're on. Um, there's a lot of that going on in, in science fiction. Um, so of course the dystopia is, is, is easy to find, uh, apocalyptic stories, um, and, um, the way they're envisioning the world. So there's a lot of utopian thoughts that falls into that. So even if there's still robots or there's still like an alien encounter, uh, the picture that they draw is much larger than just like a hero or um, some kind of self-discovery story. It often has a, a larger political social dimension. Uh, so that's an interesting aspect to it. Um, of course, a critic of consumerism and capitalism is often present. I mean, um, from... That was an interesting thing I read also several times. Is one of the difference when you try to pinpoint what's the difference between French sci-fi and American sci-fi, which is really hard to define. Hmm. Defining sci-fi in general is already enough of a nightmare. But right. um, one of the things that I read about American sci-fi is you can find right-wing science fiction. In French, I haven't encountered it yet. It's, really? It's Usually, mo I mean, the people that I met, the authors that I met, and the books that I read are often usually uh, on, on leaning on the left, let's say, uh, and will describe the, the takeover of big corporations, for example, on water or air, um, and leaving like half of the planet to die, um, things like that. A lot of post-apocalyptic uh, stories um, will deal with climate change or overconsuming. Uh, that's often the root of the problem. Um, so if there is a story where you have the rebuilding of a society afterwards, which a lot of stories don't necessarily deal always with that, they just look at the catastrophe or the immediate aftermath of it, um, <clears throat> there will be a rejection of that. Um, although it's not only on leaning on the left. I mean, you can have more pure, closer to nature, kind of take on it as René Barjaverity in, in Ravage, for example, a story conservative. So it's interesting to see the range of... What was the name of that title? Because I was just thinking, um, I heard about, but I forget the name of the book, 
there was a book, I think it was published like 30 years ago, but it was a pretty big book in France. And it was about, um, it was about how a bunch of migrants, particularly from Africa, come into France and then they make an alliance with the left wing and then they essentially get rid of uh, the traditional France. And I think there was another one published a couple of years ago that is basically the same thing. So the, I don't know. So Okay, well, <laughs> That's very interesting. we might have to Google it a little bit, but yep. I do know there are at least some dystopian sci-fi novels, maybe not so much sci-fi. I mean, they, I think they generally take place around what we would consider like our time, maybe like early 2020s, but it's basically this idea that Africans, Muslims come into the country, oh, unite boy. with the left, and then they overthrow the good, natural white France. So, oh, well, well, you know, that would be a, a, a classic symptom. What, you know, big part of France thinks. Yeah. Um, it's just the way it is. I mean, the rise of the conservative right and, uh, racist groups and everything is obvious to everybody in Europe. Um, we're lucky that France avoided them. I mean, whether you like Macron or not, um, I cannot imagine having uh, Marine Le Pen as the president of France, but you know, it can always happen. Um, but it's a tendency. Um, there's a growing discontent um, in French population in Europe in general. Um, people are always scared of what's foreign. And that's why science fiction is always a great literature to deal with those kind of issues, actually, because um, it's um, even if you don't have the answers, raising the questions is already good enough. Um, but I, yeah, the, I mean, the political issue in, in Europe is a problem. Sci-fi has often followed also the um, current events uh, and tried to ask more almost metaphysical questions around those events. I mean, in the 50s, it was, you know, the Cold War and the race to arming everybody and Hiroshima and all those kind of things. So sometimes it, it addressed things directly um, through alien invasions and stuff like this. Uh, right now, what's more interesting for me is issues of climate change or, or post-humanism and things like this. But the political issues are still also important um, to sci-fi writers. And they still inject in the narrative, you know, an alien form of life or just people who live differently uh, and try to address those, those issues. I mean, um, colonization is still shows up sometimes, post-colonial thoughts, uh, but a little less now, I think. Uh, but that was also a, a period where there were a lot of that. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, uh, I just wanted to point out that maybe those right-wing texts are there, but maybe they don't show up in the very front of uh, reputable bookstores, mm -hmm. apparently. But I've heard of a couple. So you brought up two very important themes, which I wanted to go into. How about we start with transhumanism? Because that seems to be particularly something that you're interested in. So mm -hmm. perhaps for our listeners who don't really know much about transhumanism, would you like to get into that a bit and how that is reflected in French literature? Yeah, sure. So you have two terms. You have transhumanism or posthumanism, and you'll find all kinds of definitions out there. 
So I'll tell you how I understand it or how I use it. Um, I guess I like the, the term transhumanism much more because it, for me it's always a matter of transition. Post is post what? You don't know. I mean, post assumes that you already know a point of origin that's impossible to, to pinpoint. Uh, and you can only, of course, imagine it's the post. Um, Transhumanism is something that is not necessarily proper to um, or circumscribed to science fiction because we're already in it. Hmm. Um, uh, before I, I get into explanation, there's a great book that I want to tell your listener about if, if they're um, able to read French. There is a, a Belgian philosopher called uh, Gilbert Autois, and he has a lot of uh, working groups in Belgium that... Uh, bring together philosophers, scientists, science fiction writers. And he's been looking at science fiction for many, many, many years. So that's not new. But he has a book called uh, The Encyclopedia of Trans and Posthumanism. It's a wonderful book. And it shows you also the breadth of what transhumanism can mean. So you can think of uh, all the story of um, enhancing the body. So the point is to enhance the body and the body who changes. So first of all, we research what we wear or who we wear 30,000 years ago, 50,000 years ago. We uncover bones and we reconstruct the bones and we come from monkeys. Well, why can't we ask the question, what are we going to be in 10,000, 15,000 years from now? If we were monkeys, you know, 1,000 years ago, what are we going to be? It's worth asking the question. It's, it's, it's a very legitimate question. We can't have the answer, obviously, but uh, it's obvious that we will not be what we are today. I mean, I really cannot imagine that if we're still on this earth in 15,000 years, we won't look anything like this. And that's very fascinating, I think. Um, perhaps troubling, but fascinating at least. Um, so in terms of transhumanism, if you think about the medical world, so we already have a lot of prosthesis, we have pacemakers, uh, people can uh, graft, that's how you say in English? Yeah, graft. Graft uh, skin from other people, from one person to another person. Uh, we get a heart from somebody else. Um, we get all kinds of doping <coughs> substances in sports to enhance your faculties to go faster and higher and all of this. This is transhumanism. Can I ask, would you define that as transhumanism? Because I imagine that some people would look at prosthetics and heart transplants and that sort of thing and say, okay, you are not making something, you're not making an improvement, you're just replacing what was there. So is that transhumanism? It is to me because it becomes part of yourself. I mean, I understand that, let's say you lose a... a a leg on a mine, and then you get a prosthesis to replace your leg. It, it's not uh, flesh and bone, it's true, but it really becomes part of how you function. Your body gets adapts to it, and the way you walk and the way you function in your everyday life, this prosthesis becomes part of what you do and how you think. So even if it's not necessarily flesh and bone exactly, it has an impact on your cognitive uh, ability to handle your environment, for example. Right. 
Um, the pacemaker, yes, it's a piece of, I don't know what it's made of today, metal, glass, I don't know. Uh, but it's inside of you and it regulates the rest of your function. So without it, you die. So is it not part of you? It, it's kind of part of you. If you take marijuana and you see pink uh, elephants, um, of course, it's an external substance, that, but your body reacts to it. So you are de facto modifying your body even temporarily in this even case. temporarily yes of course um so when we talk about hybridity that's also that i mean a lot of uh, science fiction uh, books for example will um imagine characters who have you know uh, ports like usb ports or right. you plug in your neck or something like this and you can communicate or uh people who know black mirror uh, for example, Black Mirror is another um, good example because it examines the ramification of what one little change uh, can have. So I often tell my students about the episode, it's one of the first episodes of the first season, where you have the ability to record your day all the time. The entire then, history of you. Yes. Uh, and then this guy starts being jealous because he thinks his girlfriend or wife or anything is having an affair. So he keeps in a loop, show, looking, looking, looking at the things. And that definitely modifies the way you perceive the world. It also shows that even though you can record, you still don't know. So the interesting thing, and I'm kind of, it, it goes all over the place when you start talking about science fiction, so I cannot help it. Oh, please. Um, Tangents are welcome. So the tangent I'm going to make here is one text that I love to teach and I love to reread every year almost is Le Orla by Maupassant. And it's this, um, so this is a short story and that has been translated. So that's easy for anybody who doesn't speak French to read. And it's uh, 1880 something texts. Fascinating. Lots of questions we should have today. The more you know, the less you know. Right. And it's, of course, it's, it's anchored in this um, end of the 19th century with the faith in progress and positivism and science will answer all the questions. And then you have this character, um, and I simplify the story, but um, the more he tries to find answers, the crazier he gets. Um, because... Um, this also this knowledge of the world creates more questions than answers most of the time and that's why science fiction is, is so fascinating it's because it takes something that you discovered and it takes it to another level uh, the 19th century is absolutely amazing i mean you can start seeing things that you couldn't see before because it's so small and then it tells you that all the stuff that's been there and you didn't see you didn't know it was there and it's there. So what else is there? What else is there that you don't see? So the 20th century, you know, you have uh, going to the moon. It's, it's really in those days. Um, you discover new planets and systems and everything. So you discover all those galaxies and those planets, but you don't know what's there. So it's like the more we, we see, we learn about, the more questions it creates because you don't, is there life out there where we don't know, but geez, there's so many planets out there. How can there not be one where there's some form of organism in there? Um, so the 
the wealth of material that sci-fi has to work with is amazing, not to mention life here on Earth. Um, and I, I just don't see another genre that asks those questions mm. so well. I mean, social issues and political issues, obviously, general literature talks, talks about it. Um, but the way science fiction kind of grasped on something and tries to go beyond the um, everyday usage also of something. Um, there's a great, another philosopher that's called, who's called Michel de Certeau, who was, uh, uh, wrote The Practice of Everyday Life. Uh, you have people like Roland Barthes and mythologies, and all these people were looking at how everyday life and everyday objects were much more than what we thought. And when something is given to you, a lot of people won't use it the way it's intended to be used. Uh, so sci-fi will use that, for example, as a, as a premise. That sounds as a device. That's, that's almost an exact quote from uh, a Firefly episode. Did you watch Firefly? No. Oh, there's an episode where one of the characters is hallucinating and you know is holding something up she thinks is a branch and says it's just an object. You don't. It isn't what you think it is, but it's actually a gun because she's going crazy. Uh -huh. But it's okay. Sorry, I didn't mean to. Yeah, no, no, no. But that, that's exactly this, and that's. Um, I mean, De Certeau calls about like um, uh, poaching. We're poachers of everyday life objects. Um, so. That's why when, I don't know, you, you invent the, 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 the telegraph or something and then sci-fi is going to take it and communicate with another planet. So they really go further. The, the thing that's interesting now is that the real world is catching up with science fiction very often. If you have a sci-fi, you read it's amazing, and the year after you learn that it actually exists. Um, and that might be why people are gaining respect for science fiction, but it's because they read it and they're like, oh, hmm, they, they got it right or something. And it's not a matter of, it's science fiction is not a crystal ball. It's not right. seeing what the world necessarily will be. But it's questioning where it could be or, um, yeah, the, I mean, the way everything is integrated, the, the consequences of inventing something new. I mean, cloning, for example, is an obvious um, technological tool that scares a lot of people for good reasons. Um, and you have Hollywood movies on that on that topic, for example. There's an author, um, current author called Marie Dariussec, uh, who some people might know because she's she's quite famous and she's been translated. But the one book that so far has not been translated by her is her short story collection called Zoo. And there are a couple um, short stories on cloning in there that are very disturbing. Uh, it's my favorite kind of sci-fi. Yes. Well, one story is called My Husband the Clone. Oh, boy. And it, it's, it's told from the perspective of a woman who has been asked to tell her story for a women's magazine. And she didn't want it at first. I'm like, okay, I'll tell because I might help somebody else. So it's set in the future, 50 years from now. And her husband died in a very funny way, which I, I think we would have to censor it, so I won't say, but okay. he dies. And the technology is not there yet to save dead people. So he's being frozen. And then after a few years, really, the technology is not there. So they decide to bury him. And it's kind of, you know, a boring, because he's been dead for like 10 or 15 years, so nobody cries anymore. They just have a funeral. 
in any case, before they decide to bury him or cremate him, uh, they get some material from him so that she can have a baby. But it's actually a clone of her husband. So she's carrying her husband uh -huh. and she's raising him again. And she's, it's, it's hilarious because Marie Dariosek has a great, very witty, dark humor too. So it's, it's a pleasure to read it. Um, and uh, she talks about her, her mother-in-law and her, his sister who wanted to raise him this way. And no, no, they raised him this way. So I won't, I won't do it this way. I'll do it that way and everything. So the whole nature nurture questioning. And, and she said that the daycare in that futuristic France, uh, priority are for the little clones. And so she has a whole, also the whole health system, for example, the whole school system is evoked in the story. So that's what I mean when I talk about uh, French science fiction. It's, it talks about all those big institutions, usually the school, the hospital, and the government are very much part of um, the whole story. The whole structure of society is imagined, not just the story of one hero or one device or one space trip. Or something like that. so that's, interesting. that's a very interesting story you brought up. And I think personally, because I am so into sci-fi, I publish sci-fi uh, short stories. I have a novel coming out this spring. Um, because I'm big into sci-fi, that really doesn't shock or terrify me. And yet, I think for most people who are casually into sci-fi, maybe they've watched The Matrix or something, mm. when they hear something like that, that sounds pretty terrifying. So do you view the potentiality for transhumanism as a positive thing? especially as we talk about really huge leaps, because so far we've talked about transhumanism as an alternate or slightly enhanced human experience. But I think when most people think about transhumanism, they either think about Captain America being injected with serum that makes him a superhuman, yes. or they think about um, prosthetics that greatly enhance a person's mm -hmm. intelligence a bit like or something. Asterix when he fell into the big cauldron and got the magic potion. Yeah, exactly. So do you yeah. view transhumanism as a positive thing? I can't see it as a positive or a negative thing. For me, it's a tool. Like many things, it's a tool. The technology that we associate with transhumanism can be used for good purposes or bad purposes. I won't say the term evil. Um, I mentioned pacemakers. I, made, I mentioned um, prosthesis for people who lose their, their legs. That's very, that's awesome. Uh, cloning is, I don't like the idea of cloning. I, I don't, well, I don't understand the need for cloning anything, even sheep, for that matter. But, um, the, the, I guess one of the questions is because um, is sometimes just because it's available, why do you necessarily need it? But I feel like the whole Western society is based on this because it's available and you need it. The, the whole, you know, commercials, consumerism is based on this. It, it just, it exists. So you should have it, which is not necessarily the case. Um, in terms of technology, there's a lot of, I mean, doping is... It's really damaging to a lot of people. I mean, athletes are suffering from it. Um, 
is there a positive aspect to doping? I don't know. There's got to be some sub. I mean, some of the substances that they use, for example, are medical substances. Like if you if you think about painkillers and and this drug epidemic of people getting addicted to painkillers. In the first instance, painkillers are great. They're there for a purpose. They help people. Then if you abuse it, then it turns into something else. I think one of the the question that transhumanism actually asks is. Do we have the capacity as human beings to have a, a smart way to look at things? Um, and that's really difficult. It's a question that philosophers asked in the 18th century in, in terms of political system. Like, There's no perfect system, but there may be some that are a little better than others. I don't know. Uh, transhumanism can it's it's always going to be seen perhaps um, as dangerous because there's always the potential of abuse. But it's no different from other things in life. Um, so I don't see it necessarily as negative, but I think as human beings we definitely have the potential <laughs> to make something really terrible with it. Um, and there's no way around it. It's just it's almost human nature. Um, so, but I don't want to see it as negative in itself. It's 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 new technology, and it's always new. It's always hard to get used to new things. Um, so I'm and then I'm I'm just like everybody else. Sometimes I hear new things like, oh my god, no. Um, and then at the same time, if see the more I get informed, the more I can see the positive also usage of a few things. And um, that's why you need to read extensively on things sometimes and see different sides of a story because uh, we're often presented only one side of a story and it's very detrimental um, to our thinking. Um, but it, it's hard because we're bombarded with information. It's hard sometimes to see where it comes from. But I don't think it's necessarily negative. I mean, it's just like um, I had a great sci-fi author uh, here at PSU two years ago, Sylvie Denis. And the students ask her, because she's quite dystopic in her way of thinking, and she hates the politics here. <laughs> and so people were, were, students were asking her, like, oh, how do you see the world in, in, in five years? Do you think it's going to be like the apocalypse and uh, it's going to be completely dystopic? Or, and her answer was that at, in the short, short term, <clears throat> she was not optimistic, but in the long term, she was, because we always rebound or something like this. So... Hmm. I think new technology um, takes time and uh, hopefully we'll be smart enough to not make some, do something very, very stupid. Uh, the problem is the things are very insidious and we're doing very stupid things right now that take you know a long time to show. And then when people don't see the consequences of something right in front of their nose, they think you can dismiss it, like climate change or you know, just polluting rivers, and we're trying to protect rivers, and then somebody comes behind and just takes off all the protections, and then we're set back, and we'll have to clean up one day. Um, so Today's episode is brought to you by Factor. Factor provides fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes. Factor includes a variety of plans, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto, among others. Factor is perfect for a busy routine, 
with high-quality, healthy food that fits into your daily schedule. Mouth-watering dishes like chicken and mushroom tetrazzini, cavatappi and Italian-style pork ragu, and artichoke and spinach chicken are all on this week's menu, and you don't want to miss out on those. In addition to savory meals, Factor offers snacks and wellness shots, the latter of which has become a personal favorite of mine. Go to factormeals.com slash frenchhistory50 and use the code frenchhistory50 to get 50% off Factor Meals. That again is factormeals.com slash frenchhistory50 and use the code frenchhistory50. Sign up today. Your stomach will thank you. That's great for you guys. <laughs> I know, right? As the yeah, future generation inheriting it. Yeah. You know, um, that's interesting that you uh, talk about that. And it's funny how I think sci-fi writers either write about a utopia or, as it's becoming more often, a dystopia. Mm-hmm. Because just from my experience as a historian, I think that it's neither one or the other, but that you can have two very different uh, situations in different places. So, for example, I would argue that for a lot of Native Americans, um, the apocalypse has already happened. It's already been a dystopia. I mean, uh, in particular, I was researching the the poorest place in America. I think uh, the average person gets, I think, $900 a year. There's something like 96 unemployment. It's like a, a small town of like 160 Native Americans who are the people living near where uh, Wounded Knee was. And so here... They're already living in an apocalypse, dystopia, you know, not to, yes. I, I want to be as sensitive as possible, but I think people get my general intention. Whereas other people in America are living better than any humans ever have. Mm-hmm. So I kind of see both happening simultaneously, oh, but yes. maybe that's my take. Well, somebody's <clears throat> utopia can be somebody else's dystopia. Exactly. Um, but see, the comparison that you make, for example, can, can be made in many places. Um, I was in Europe recently, and I was in a in an airport shuttle, and it was in, in Switzerland and in French. And the news did a very short segment out of nowhere, and then moved on to something else, and said like in the U.S. people uh, um, waste like seven times more than the rest of the world, the the average of the rest of the world, or something. I mean, a number that is really staggering. And I always think of the of the refugee crisis, and I always think of somebody from, let's say, you know, a poor village in Africa arriving in Portland, for example, and stepping in a supermarket for the first time. That must be extremely disturbing to see an aisle that's only for cereal boxes. Um, and so this this idea of estrangement that science fiction usually starts with very often that's what you'll find in a lot of books that are trying to define science fiction is like you're you are as a reader put in a strange place that happens to people all the time um and i'm not talking about a simple cultural shock as a tourist somewhere um but i just can't imagine that that experience of uh, going from a place where you have trouble finding like one cup and ending up in a store where you have to choose between 50 of them. 
And that's the thing also that sometimes helps me teach things to my students this, for example, the idea of choice and the thing that you always need to choose in the US. You cannot not choose because you have so much to choose from. So let's say one morning you, you break a cup or something and you're like, I need a cup, any cup, I just need a cup. You cannot need a cup. It's not possible to just need a cup because when you go to the store, you have to choose between different shapes, different sizes, different colors. Some have words, some don't have words. So you cannot not choose. So everything is edited and everything is a sign. Everything is a code because depending on what you'll choose, you, you will make a choice. And that idea of perhaps, you know, not having to make that choice to a world where you have to constantly make a choice um, must be a very strange situation. So you can imagine some sort of a short story on that premise and you can set it as a science fiction story. You don't have to. But sometimes people will be more receptive to that, to the premise, to the device, to the that mental uh, issue, question, if it's set in a science fiction narrative. Now you have to help people see through it sometimes um, so that they understand that the story actually is not that far away from them. And that's the thing also, I think a lot of people don't read science fiction because they think it has nothing to do with them. And it's really not the case. Yeah, that makes me think, you know, if you if you give someone a hypothetical scenario and say, okay, there's a young man on a desert planet whose family is killed by government, and then he becomes a rebel fighter that ends up fighting against this organization, is that okay? I think most people say no. And then if you tell them, oh, that's Luke Skywalker, it's like, well, that's yeah. a total flip. I would, yeah, that's funny. I was thinking of the opposite. When you told the story, I was like, people will put it, oh yeah, I want to read that story. It's pretty awesome. And then you mentioned Al-Qaeda and everybody was like, oh. Yeah. It's true, but that's, that's also because it, it helps you. And it doesn't mean that you have to agree with anything. That's the thing that people have to understand because I'm really tired of that mindset of like when you're trying to understand something it's because you're siding with the bad guy oh that drives me nuts um trying to understand how how people commit absolutely horrific acts is, is not a way to excuse it it's a way to try to prevent it from happening again or understand why people come to those conclusions uh now of course sometimes it, it ends up that you have to look at a little bit at yourself too and that's uncomfortable but if you read just to be comfortable then yeah, okay. what are you? What are you even doing? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's fine. Once in a while, I like to read what I'm comfortable with. Also, you know, it's my little utopia, I guess. Right. Uh, but most of the time, I like to read things that, you know, a little, go a little deeper than that. Yeah. If a work doesn't bother you in some way, then is it really worth reading so much? Yeah, and you're not learning anything. Exactly. So. So I wanted to get back a little bit specifically to the transhumanism question, because mm -hmm. you were saying that it's not necessarily good or bad, but a lot of the time transhumanism is associated with dehumanization, that mm -hmm. essentially a character will become so omniscient or omnipotent that they cease to function as a normal mm -hmm. human being. Maybe you can provide French examples. For me, I'm thinking of someone like Dr. Manhattan in Watchmen. Mm -hmm. uh, so do you agree with this? 
No, I don't. Um, I'm trying to find specific. Uh, Sylvie Denis has some um, short stories that deal with that. Um, but but once again, it, it can be completely abused. So um, and but I don't believe that if transhumanism should lead to dehumanization. Um, transhumanism is the way. Let's let's just say like to, to super simplify, like you modify your body. Well, it doesn't mean that you're less of a person, first of all, and it doesn't mean that you have to be a bad person. If you're a bad person, you're a bad person, whether you you modify your body or not. Um, you know the whole uh, superpower heroes and things like this. You can you know with great powers come great responsibilities. So oh boy! <laughs> you can have great powers and use them well or use them badly. I mean. All the Marvel comics deal with like good heroes and, and bad characters. Um, so transhumanism is a bit like this. I mean, I, I really, I. It's really, it really depends on what we make of it as human beings. So, for example, let's say for a moment, hypothetical sci-fi scenario. Let's say you have a character that takes some sort of experimental pill and mm -hmm. suddenly becomes 10 times smarter than an average human mm -hmm. being. They're just an expert in absolutely mm -hmm. everything, that sort of mm -hmm. thing. Are they still human? Have they become something different or? Ah, but then you ask the question, what is, what is it to be human? I think that's essentially what we are asking. No, I, I, well, if I could answer that, that'd be great. I think that would be a bestseller. Oh so boy. I, <laughs> I just have an opinion on this, I guess. Um, I, I don't know how to, to define what it is to be human. I guess I could try to define what it is to not be human, but I, I don't really know what that is either. Um, because the term human is a bit like the term nature. It has so many connotations. Uh, for some people, to be human is to be good. Well, that's Rousseau. That's very naive. It's lovely, but it's the, you know, the the gentle savage idea, the noble savage idea. Um, to be human, does it mean to have uh, two legs, two arms? Does it mean to speak? The difference between us and animals is that we have speech. Well, that's a terrible power, speech. Are we doing something good with it? Well, it depends. I mean, being able to speak is just an amazing ability. Well, some people don't speak. They're mute. Are they human? You know? Um, some people can't see. Are they human? Some people are smaller than others or bigger than others. What makes it that some people are human and not? What what makes it that some people live in terrible conditions and arrive at our borders and um, suddenly they, they're just a number on a piece of paper and we let them die in some terrible facility somewhere? And well, they're less human than you and I? I mean, what is it that makes us human? So when you go into transhumanism, or post-humanism issues, and you talk more about like physical enhancement, te technological enhancement, and stuff like this. Well, at, at which threshold do you think somebody stops being human? I don't think you can decide that. Um, uh, and at some point, you know, then you have to, if you, if you try to enter it from the other side and you look at artificial intelligence now, when is it that, why are people so afraid of it? Because when it because they don't know the threshold when when will we consider artificial intelligence to be human? I think it will never be. But at some point, it might be hard to make the difference. 
Can you have a normal conversation with an artificial intelligence and not know the difference? That's far, far away. Um, but yet, when again, we think about 10,000 years from now, I don't know. So these are fascinating questions to which I really don't have the answers, but I, I love to think about it and, 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 and talk about it and imagine things. So I make my own science fiction in my head, I guess. Um, but I'm not afraid of transhumanism at all. I mean, it's just, um, you know, I have tattoos and people have piercings and um, and it doesn't, you cannot judge a book by its cover. Um, I've met some very uh, physically all over the place people with extremely conservative ideas. And I've met some very shy, conservative looking people with very progressive ideas. Um, so I try to reserve my judgment uh, and try to get to know somebody a little bit. It's hard, it's not, it doesn't come naturally. But with experience, and I think being a teacher, I think is, is a great um, way to do this. I've been at PSU for 10 years and I've met so many wonderful students, really helped me open my, my mind to a lot of ways of seeing things. Uh, and teaching sci-fi has been also reading and, and teaching sci-fi has been great for this. So, you know, what is not human? I don't know. Yeah, I can absolutely agree with you on the teaching part. That's been really revolutionary for me. Mm-hmm. What's funny, funny about the what you brought up about why are people afraid of artificial intelligence and whether or not it can become human? I'm not so much afraid of artificial intelligence become human. I'm afraid of it going beyond that, turning into uh, Terminator or something. Then there's, um, mm. I think one of my favorite like micro stories. Have you heard this one? Basically, uh, humanity wanted to just find out whether or not God existed. And so they built this computer and they kept building it and building it and building it in order to make it capable of computing, you know, anything that was possible. And they made some incredible machine and they asked the computer, does God exist? And then the computer said, he does now. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's yeah, my yeah. favorite well, micro story. You know, I think it's Voltaire who said the, um, God created us and uh, we, we did the same to him. So we returned the favor very well. Or something like yes, that. that's exactly yes. it. And he, yeah. Well, that, that's an interesting story, of course, but what, what you can question is, is, is the premise of the story in the first place. Why would you want to prove God? Well, to me, I'm an atheist, and so we shouldn't, I don't want to shock anybody, so I'm not going to go into religion too much, because that's, not, that's usually a dystopian topic for me, right off the bat. But if you're trying so hard to prove God, then it means your faith is not very strong. Hmm. If you're trying to find, I mean, at the same time, if you don't prove it, then you cannot try to recruit more people because you don't have argument. Hmm. You know, God exists, and that's the end of it. Descartes didn't (laughs) didn't work very well for him when he tried to prove it too. Um, There's a great scene. There's a wonderful movie for this, which has nothing to do with sci-fi, but it's a historical movie. It's called Ridicule. Uh, yes, yes, I've seen that. Well, there is a scene in Ridicule where the famous priest, uh, who's very witty and very articulate, makes a whole speech in front of the king and proves the idea of God, proves God. 
And then at the very end, because he's too smart and he doesn't know where to stop, yes. says, and I could have proved exactly the opposite the same way. And then he's completely banished from the court, obviously. Uh, but it's rhetorical. You can't, you know, uh, in, in Lorla, you have the scene with the monk where he says, well, the wind exists. You can't see it. It exists. Now we have instruments to measure wind. So now we can prove actually that it exists. Um, but this idea of always, um, but I guess that's a human quest. We always want question, uh, answers to everything. And uh, for me, the goal is to learn to live without having the answers to everything. And uh, it's a lot of fun, <laughs> <laughs> actually. Well, moving from God to nature. So yes. one thing that I absolutely love, and which is actually one of the major themes in, in my book that's coming up, mm -hmm. not to do any shameless plugs, but mm -hmm. is climate change, yes. uh, particularly the possibility of a future radically different from ours, which is possible even without a lot of change, because even if mm -hmm. our sea levels rise by one meter, that's going to have devastating consequences. Oh, yeah, yeah, ten, oh, yeah, tens of, if not hundreds of millions of people will be pushed inland, mm -hmm. huge refugee crisis, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. So is this a theme you've seen addressed in French science fiction? And can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, that's that's a that's an important theme in French science fiction. Even since the seventies, um, authors have been dealing with um, issues of deforestation, yeah, just pure pollution. Um, so, uh, you know, we talk about transhumanism. You can talk also about the modification of, of uh, seeds, all the Monsanto um, kind of uh, tropes, I would say. Uh, big corporations and stuff like this, having ownership of water or air or stuff like this, so uh, and abusing it, uh, releasing chemicals in, in water or um, viruses, um, all that type of thing is, is a very um, common um, device for French science fiction. And um, so the last article that uh, I wrote and has been accepted, so it probably will be published next year. I have the number, but I don't remember the month. In the French Review, deals with that, and it's a, a big novel by Jean-Marc Ligny, who's also a, a big famous writer, uh, and it's called Exode. And um, the story is the um, the crossing path of several people that are thrown on the roads because of climate change, and they they look for a place where life is better, but there's not actually. And that's the interesting part. So there's no hope in that book. There's no happy ending. Uh, so it deals also with rising sea levels. And um, it mentions, so you never know exactly who to blame, but it's overconsumption, wars, but wars are over, and pollution of water. And he wrote another book, a famous book that was called Aqua, uh, that dealt with the pollution of water. So now it's very rare to find good water. Um, so those stories are, are quite popular. Um, they're very often connected to big corporations in the capitalist um, economic model. Uh, it's really in isolation. So, um, and it, it, it talks about the um, complacency of people to just, uh, you know, you have new tech, we talk about technology a lot. And we all have like a big fridge. And I mean, in France, the fridges are three times smaller than ours. And mine is always full. I don't know how, because my mom has a tiny one, which is fine. 
So we, you know, we use a lot of energy, um, a lot of energy. Um, we have air conditioning everywhere. So, so we don't, unfortunately, we don't think about this often enough. Uh, and it's just very comfortable to have air conditioning, but it's awful for the planet. Um, so yes, it's a big theme in science fiction. Um, it's usually dealt with through um, a post-apocalyptic narrative, like things collapsed. And it's, it's really interesting because the question that for me is raised by all those post-apocalyptic narratives is, is it that desperate that I can't find really a book that deals with changing things now? They all have to just destroy things and then restart. It's like, it's too much work to deal with it now and to fix it. We're just like, we're just gonna like launch the bomb or flood the whole world and everything. And then we'll have uh, a story of people rebuilding. Um, the rebuilding is not always positive either, actually, depending on the books. Um, some of them are, are positive or negative. But it's really this idea of, there's always a, a utopian idea behind, like, you know, tabula rasa, um, idea of trying to make things different uh, but it's to me it's always a statement of failure somewhere every time you write a post-apocalyptic book even if it has a happy ending and things restart well for for us today as readers it's a statement that we failed because you have to destroy the world before you can rebuild it that's that's really sad that at this point in in humanity we can't see how to fix it we have to just let things go or accelerate the destruction of it almost. And sometimes it's that death drive, if you read a, a little bit of Freud, that makes it like we're going to death, like we're trying to go faster toward it for some weird reason. Um, and uh, we're kind of a, in a train that we can't stop. Um, and uh, people maybe know Snowpiercer. That makes me think. The right. idea of a train makes me think of Snowpiercer. Uh, if you've we seen all the crash movie, you have to read the comics. But anyway, uh, so yeah, that idea of climate change is um, is something that science fiction deals a lot with, also because um, science fiction, because it projects itself a little further than general literature. Of course, it's going to look at the consequences of things, uh, and not the consequences just on the rivers or on the forest, but the consequences on us. On, on human life, on the way we deal with each other. Um, the idea of devolution is very often associated with this. And it's um, and I think it's constantly actually asking what makes us human. Because when you have those types of stories, and let's say there is an apocalypse and we lose, I don't know, we lose power. No more TV, no more fridge, no more anything that to help you. You just have your legs to walk and things like that. Who do you become? Uh, what do you go back to? So that's often also uh, something that's a great storyline. Um, and you have those stories where people go back to being beasts, you know, like really devolve into primitive beings. Uh, and then you have the opposite. Or sometimes you have both in the same story. Um, so it always questions. So the question is that what it is that makes us human and it's human... Um, in itself, who are we with the other in terms of relationships with each other, the community questions, what's our 
cultural identity, national identity, all the ideas of nation, for example, most science fiction nations don't exist anymore. That's a, the, the idea of the state, for example, is gone out of There's no sci-fi novels today that deals with the state. The state is always taken over by either corporation or it doesn't exist anymore. So that's interesting in itself. And also, what is our relationship to the environment? So those three kind of levels of questioning, like ontologically, who are we? Uh, how do we deal with the other, with the capital O? How do we get together? How do we build together, if we can? And what's the relationship that we should have with the world that we live in? Um, so all the, the theory of you have eco-criticism, you have animal rights, you have all of this is, is encompassed in those narratives because at least on the French side from what I read, when you deal with those issues, there's the ramifications are large. Um, like I said, it's, it's no longer just a story of one hero who's trying to rebuild his little commune somewhere or uh, it, it exists, you still have that kind of stories, but they're not some of the most interesting ones. Um, so what is the world today? What, what are we making of it? Uh, the other issue that's very interesting in French science fiction that we haven't touched upon is um, all the issues of um, uh, virtual reality, alternative reality, simulacrum. All that comes out also from French thinkers like Baudrillard and all this um, that have been uh, very fruitful for science fiction. So there's some great stuff uh, about that too. Um, if people want to discover really, really good fringe science fiction, I would advise them to read uh, Sabrina Calvo, who used to publish under the name David Calvo. Uh, it's out of this world. It's extremely well written. It's uh, For me, it's hard to read American science fiction sometimes because as a non-native reader, it's very hard literature to read. Um, because the real good science fiction is very technical. Oh yes, I cannot imagine translating those words, those works. Um, so Sabrina's books are really complex, but it's really one of my big discovery of the last two years. Um, there's also a couple, uh, two tomes. Uh, I don't remember the name of the author because uh, he's not very famous, but it's called Metakin, and it deals with the pharmaceutical industry and uh, which collapsed a little, collapses a little bit with the virtual world, video game, second uh, life kind of thing. And so that's also the type of narrative that are really, they're impossible to summarize almost because the stories are so built. It's not necessarily, you know, a journey or uh, with a start, a middle and an end and clear episodes. It's a whole experience and you're immersed in those books. So you have those trends in France. You have more like, uh, I'd say, the social concerns, um, climate change. And then you have also those um, that perhaps you could link more to transhumanism, perhaps, because it really changes who we are as humans, the way we think, the way we see the world, how, the way we perceive things through either new substances or new technology or new devices that make us handle the world differently. So this is all part of the, the new stuff. Um, and it, sometimes it's seen positively, sometimes negatively. Sometimes you have to go through the negative to arrive to the positive. Um, you have a little bit of everything, and then you have a lot of crap, like in any kind of literature. Really <laughs> um, there's some really good stuff. The problem is, 
I don't know how we're going to get that translated. Right. Well, that leads into my next question, which is what do you envision for the future of French science fiction? Do you think that there's any chance that maybe it will get a wider audience or become more popular? Well, I'm, I'm hopeful, but I think it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of work and a few dedicated people. Um, I'm working on it, but in France first, Within France, science fiction is, is uh, gaining traction. Like in academia, for example, that's a genre that was not at all considered, but really not at all. And now you start having people um, teaching it, writing about it, uh, using it not only in literature courses, but sometimes in philosophy courses or things like that. So it's entering the university. And that's a big deal, and that's recent. Um, I think they're gaining visibility. Those big festivals also help. Um, there's also like you were talking about Macron and the fact that uh, there's the one thing that I regret does not exist in the U.S. and does exist in France is the more interdisciplinary way of looking at things. Um, if you want to rebuild the city, for example, the mayor might bring together philosophers, architects, uh, writers, you know, community leaders, like all kinds of people. And if you watch the news in France, it's always like a movie director or writer that's invited on the news. So art, philosophy, and all this is usually not discarded. It's part of the thinking. Uh, so I think it's a good thing for science fiction because a science fiction writers, first of all, a lot of them come from a scientific background. Uh, or in this industrial background. So a lot of the science fiction, even though it you know goes astray onto some alternative reality path, these people do their research. They're interested, they're curious. Uh, sometimes they read just popular magazines, not necessarily very technical things. Um, but they follow what's going on. So even if you have a story that's kind of out of this world, literally, um, the premise is always connected to what's going on in the world. Uh, so people are starting to read it more, connect with it more. I think uh, cinema is helping. Uh, right, the trend is more into fantasy than science fiction these days, but still it makes people think a little bit. There's been a few good sci-fi movies. Uh, comics are very popular in France. There's some really beautiful and really well-written comics about science fiction uh, stories. Um, so those avenues in France are developing, and, and that's a big deal because in France too, it was, it was not a big interest. You know, you that corner in the dark, like the nerds go to and buy <laughs> sci-fi books. Now it's a little different. In terms of crossing over, um, I find some books that are translated, you know, in Italian or in German, and something, but not in English. The market is saturated with, with American and British sci-fi, a very good one too. So there's no need for the market itself. And if you market it, I don't know how they would market it because, you know, like French sci-fi, is it, it is somewhat of a global international genre, even if you can find some kind of different sensitivity sometimes on the European side. Um, so I don't know. I, I, it, everything is about money here. So if it doesn't make money, um, I, I don't know. So I'm trying to be optimistic also because I have like people like Natasha Vazdez and some people who are in the U.S. and are starting to be interested. The other thing that makes me optimistic is the um, 
uh, the textbook that I um, wrote with a colleague about teaching science fi French science fiction, and it's open source, so anybody can find it and look at it on the uh, PDX Scholar platform of the Portland State Library, and it's called Histoire d'Avenir. And each chapter is based on a short story, and the short stories are not, are not in the book for copyright purposes, but they're available to read online on, on the um, library website. Uh, so you can just go read the stories if you're interested. These are available. You can find those. Uh, and you can look at the book. Um, it's been downloaded like 2,400 times around the world. So I don't know if people teach with it or they just uh, look at it, um, but it's been quite successful. Uh, students really like it. I have a colleague who's going to write uh, a review, a positive review of it to be published as well. Um, so I know the... The problem is to make it available because every time I teach science fiction, even when students are a little at first like they don't really know what they're gonna get, they always love it. So it's a little bit sometimes like to get a taste of it, and if you get a taste of good sci-fi, you'll want it. But just opening the door is really uh, it, it's not easy. And uh, if I manage to do this anthology, anthology is going to take you know a few years because you have to find the text, you have to get the agreement of the author, you got to get translated before you get them published and all that. So it's a long work. And if you wanted to get like one novel, I, don't, I wouldn't know which one to pick because um, that's also an another idea. But you you need to create a corpus to create interests, um, and that's kind of an uphill battle. But um, but hopefully that will happen. I mean, short stories I think are wonderful. It's a great genre. It's very high quality. Sylvie Lenné, Sylvie Denis uh, write short stories of really great quality. So that's a great way to enter also French science fiction for for people who can read French, uh, but you know don't cannot read a three or four hundred page novel. Short stories are wonderful. You'll find some online. Um, you might find some of, if you find anything translated, that will be a short story, most likely, hidden in, was it galaxies or magazines or something like that. Um, so you can find a few, th I found some old um, expired uh, edition of like 1960s so stories, uh, but these are like on eBay. And I, I almost don't open it because I don't want the book to crumble. And, um, but nowadays, it's really, it's really hard, uh, right. and and nobody's looking into it. I mean, I I do contemporary science fiction, so every time I teach, I have to have the books shipped from France because you can't find them here. Now I'm lucky because Kindle is starting to have some books that I can access here. Um, but otherwise, you have to do a little bit of your of your own research. Um, and uh, yeah, short stories are a great way to enter that world. And see if you like it or not. Absolutely. Short stories are, in my opinion, where most of the good literature is because with mm -hmm. mass market novels, they are made to be sold by essentially a, a huge number of people, whereas short stories, those are for the discerning people who really want to just dive into new ideas. Mm -hmm. So in any case, um, is there anything we haven't discussed yet that you would like to talk about? Or have we covered everything? I think we covered a lot. All I right. mean, um, <clears throat> I'd say if, so, if um, people want to know more, 
because I can't give you a list of authors in the sense that I'll, you know, I'll come up with two or three names. And but the best way is probably to go on uh, the website of the uh, Utopial Festival. The other festival is Les Imaginaires in Epinal. And if you go on those websites and you look at the the guests of the festival over the years or the prize prices uh, prizes for the best book or best novel and stuff, that can help you find references because. There's still a lot out there. Like, okay, if I want to read French sci-fi, where do I start? What do I get? Anywhere. It will help you. You can start anywhere, um, but then you can find like a little, perhaps a bio of the author, or or like a, the great site where you can buy online sci-fi. And sometimes they have short story for ninety nine cents. Is ActuSF, ActuSF.com, and they're a publisher. They're a magazine. It's a wonderful site. And you can get lots of reference there. So, uh, so the only thing I'd like to add is, yeah, to point some places to people who want to know a little more. Uh, I really encourage people to to go discover this wonderful literature and uh, and get disturbed. Well, hopefully, my podcast will get more people listening. Thank you very much, Professor. As always, donations keep the podcast going. So if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.